A quick content warning. In this episode, we talk about disability and emotions, and what it feels like to live in a world that struggles to accept either one. I took a course in geology because I thought it was the easiest way of fulfilling a science requirement. One day, the professor took us out to the Connecticut River Valley to show us the meander curves of an old age river. I was paying no attention because I had walked up a dirt path and found a big turtle, a giant mud turtle about two feet across, on the muddy embankment of an asphalt road. I was sure it was going to crawl into the road and be crushed by a car. So with a lot of difficulty, I picked up this huge snapping turtle and slowly carried it down the river. Just as I had slipped it into the water and was watching it swim away, my geology professor came up behind me. You know, he said quietly, that turtle has probably spent a month crawling up the dirt path to lay its eggs in the mud on the side of the road. You have just put it back in the river. I felt terrible. I couldn't believe what I had done, but it was too late. It took me many more years to realize this parable had taught me the first rule of organizing. Always ask the turtle. Gloria Steinem, My Life on the Road. I'm ambivalently yours, and this is Rebelliously Tiny, a podcast where each week my co-producer Hannah McCaslin and I invite a special guest to help us respond to one of the thousands of personal questions I've received on social media. In a world that teaches us that strength is loud, harsh, and masculine, this is a place for those of us whose struggle is both impossibly large and rebelliously tiny. Here's the question that inspired this week's episode. The message has been slightly edited to ensure anonymity. I've been constantly judged my whole life because my legs are two different sizes. High school this year was a little better when I realized that why should I care what people think of me? I'm my own person. I shouldn't be so fixated on the idea of perfection. Are you confident in your skin? Or do you secretly wish you were someone else? Before we start, do you want to introduce yourself? Oh, oh certainly. Sure. Um, my name is Rebecca Tossig. Uh, I just finished um, my PhD in um, disability studies and creative nonfiction. Um, so I was in school for my entire life <laughs> until I graduated last spring and just um, have just gotten my first adult job as a high school English teacher. Just a uh, wild experience, <laughs> like nothing I've done before. But um, so I'm a teacher, I'm a writer, I have um, uh, Instagram, that kind of project that I, um, I try to tell stories about um, being a woman with a disability. Um, so I kind of capture miniature memoirs in, in that space too. So those are some things that I do and who I am. I met Rebecca the way we all meet these days on Instagram. 
I forget who followed who first, but as soon as I saw her profile and started scrolling through her posts, I knew I wanted to know her. Her amazing floral dresses, the way she frames her body in her self-portraits, and the generous manner in which she writes about her life. Everything she does is a perfect juxtaposition of beauty and confrontation. When we finally Skyped for this podcast and had our first real conversation, I fell for everything she does and is all over again. I found you on the internet, That's how, or you found me, or we found each other. I can't remember which came first. Um, and I've been following you and really been just been really interested in what you write and the photos you post and sort of like how you share these like little personal stories as a way to talk about kind of bigger things mm-hmm. in a way that make it easier to maybe connect on an emotional level with what you're saying, um, which I thought was just really great and, and, and interesting. So I thought you'd be perfect for the podcast. Um, um, thank you. How flattering, because I seriously am like such a fan of everything you make. So to feel like <laughs> you see something in the things that I'm making is like butterfly feelings. <laughs> so exciting. Well, I think maybe it's because we kind of do similar things and where we both use a lot of personal experience mm-hmm. to to say things, to say bigger things, I think. Mm-hmm. Um mm-hmm. Yeah, so what were your sort of first impressions of the question? Well, it reminds me of myself in high school. Um, there's, it's like there's an um, energy and tone in it that, um, that, that really captures how I, I feel like um, I was beginning to feel and process things in high school. Also, I just realized when I introduced myself, I said I did disability studies, but I didn't talk at all about my body, which um, I... I'm paralyzed. I've been paralyzed from the time I was uh, about three years old. Um, And so for me, um, I grew up um, absorbing a lot of narratives about my body without being aware of them. Um, So learning really early um, that I was on the outside of something, that I didn't have access to certain spaces and people and goals. Um, I think I learned a lot. I picked up a lot of the narratives about... um, ideals for women more specifically and, um, um, and not only like, um, what a woman, a woman should look like, but what a woman's goals should be and what she needs to be in order to attain those goals. So a lot of things wrapped up in like, um, attain, like getting a man to find you attractive enough to want to be with you or something, you know, like a lot of narratives about that. And so my body didn't fit into that narrative. And I learned that, um, it just accumulatively uh, over time. Um, so by the time I got to high school, I feel like I knew I knew that I didn't fit. I had I'd seen and absorbed these narratives um, for many years, and everybody was kind of pairing off. A lot of things happened in high school, a lot of categorizing and path choosing, and um, uh, I don't know. I, it, it just beca- kind of came to a head. Um, and so I think that a really um, common reaction to that or one that I really felt and I think the letter writer is feeling which is just like ugh, I'm over it like I'm not I shouldn't feel this I shouldn't care and so I'm just not gonna care and I'm gonna shut everything down and not care and I'm gonna um go my own way and care about something else once you kind of begin to unravel some of the whys um 
and the hows and, and how did we get here, I think that's when there's a little bit more power to actually undo that. Um, I think somehow um, when you just say, this is stupid and I don't care, it's, it's, you keep running into the same wall because you still live in the same world where everybody else or so many people do care. And so you re- these, are, these ideas about what you, your body should look like are reinforced um, everywhere, all over the place. Um, and so why can I just not stop caring about it? I don't know. Um, it seems like there's, um, that's kind of a setup for a lot of frustration to just force yourself to stop caring about something. Um, at least that's how it was for me. Um, I think I shut off a lot in an attempt to just not care, um, when I was younger, um, because it's painful, um, and feeling, feeling like you're, not accepted or you're not welcome or you're not allowed um, to be a part of uh, something is really painful. I have this fantasy where I'm a cool person. And by cool, I mean one of those carefree, even-tempered people who don't get swallowed up by every emotion that enters their body. Sometimes I try to convince myself that this fantasy is attainable. Maybe with just a little effort, I too could be cool. Alas, I have learned the hard way that I am not and will never be cool. I'm the opposite of cool. I'm lukewarm. Or, in more extreme moments, I guess, a hot mess. I'm an ocean of emotions. A clutter of feelings. Every felt thing is all-consuming and impossible to ignore. And when I do manage to hold some of the feelings in, they seep out in other, often more embarrassing ways. They mutate into eye twitches, anxious thoughts, misplaced aggression, or public meltdowns. Because that's the thing about feelings. They don't go away just because you want them to. And tragically, the more you try to hold them back, the more volatile they are when they come out. I think, like you say, um, the like not caring almost as like a, a defense mechanism. Yeah, it, it's a it's a tool for coping, and I think that 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 has a place at in some at sometimes. Like we need to just cope for a while, get through high school. I'm not gonna care. I'm gonna barrel my way through high school, not caring. Um, but it doesn't. I don't think that for me, at least, um, that that was any sort of long term healing or long-term um, progress or I don't know. I don't like the word progress, but um, <laughs> anything long-term. This is like not a long-term solution. And so. so when did that sort of change for you? Like, do you feel that there was a time when you found a way to maybe confront these things and heal or? Yes, <laughs> I do. I, but it's kind of like a long, messy story. I, I think for I think for me, um, I think one of the reasons I really love your work so much is that you 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 have such a um, value on um, on your feelings as being like a part of um, of all of this as something to um, like guide you and and um, something that like shutting it off doesn't doesn't lead anywhere. It's not helpful. Um, and so I, I, I think part of the reason that that really resonates with me so hard is because, um, because I just did that 
so consistently and so um, powerfully just shut everything off. Like I kind of see in that letter, right? I don't care. Um, and so I, um, I kind of was operating in, in a space of being really disconnected from myself for a long time and started making a lot of really bad choices from that place. Um, choices that were, um, really, um, motivated by fear, um, and, and kind of like a frantic desire to have for acceptance. Um, and so I kind of, like I mentioned, uh, earlier, like one of the big narratives that I bought into is like, well, as a woman, I, it's really important that I be, um, um, like valued by men or seen as attractive by men and like that someone will want to be with me. Um, and so I got married really young to someone that I really had no business at all marrying. Um, it was just like a bad idea from every angle that you looked at it. Um, <laughs> and you know, just really taking my life by the horns and messing it up. Um, so, but it was just really messy. It got really messy. And, um, and I, I, I think I finally, um, got to the place where I, I, uh, like that coping mechanism, um, that tool of shutting myself off from allowing myself to feel the things that I feel, or even know what I feel, um, that tool just, um, collapsed. Um, and so I really, um, kind of broke down in every, in, in physical and mental ways. Um, and, I was about, um, 23 at the time. And so, um, when, when all of that happened. And so, um, there's just this, at a time of rebuilding, um, and, and actually, um, realizing that I, I needed to know what I felt about things in order to uh, be a whole person in the world and to be able to like take care of myself, um, I think, I think a big part of it, and I don't want to say all of it, but I think a big part of it was acknowledging like what it has meant for me to be a disabled person, child, adolescent, young adult. And now I think that I just was not willing to acknowledge, um, how that had impacted or affected a lot of my experiences in ways that, um, well, in, in all sorts of ways, but when you're shutting yourself off from it, you can't recognize any of it. You can't acknowledge any of it or engage any of it. So, um, yeah, so I started writing about it a lot, um, and sharing, um, sharing those experiences, which is kind of what led to the, the thing that brought, that found, that connected us originally, which is the online space of, of, um, writing about what it means to live in this body. disabled 
girl. Um, the amazing sparkling shining in the sky. Let's all look at her go. Um, but I, without being able to acknowledge the complexity of all of it, um, it, it like none of it was very true. Um, I couldn't actually see any genuine value in it because I didn't even know what it was because I couldn't look at it in, with any honesty. So, um, yes, um, it's been a little bit of a journey. Yeah, it almost sounds like a lot of it was like performing for other people's comfort for you to be like, oh, yeah, I'm totally fine and uh, I'm just here to inspire yes. you. Absolutely. That's actually like perfect articulation performing for other people's comfort um and I think by extension mine like it felt like I will be comfortable if everyone else is comfortable mm-hmm. um and and that narrative is strong um we we want to, we want to see people overcoming odds and um I don't know hurtling forward with their own grit you know like we want to see that so um so much um and I just learned that so early um when I was like before I even had memories I knew that that was um kind of my job so I carried with it carried it with me for a long time and honestly like one of the things in this letter that I um was thinking about is um at the end, she asks something. I had it pulled up and I lost it. Um, she asked something about, um, like, do you do you ever struggle with those feelings? Do you feel comfortable in your own body, or do you struggle with those feelings? And I, um, I definitely feel like I'm, I'm still in the middle of um, like having to remind myself of things that I feel like I learned years ago, and I'm still picking them back up and remembering. Um, so that impulse, um, that you described of like performing for other people's comfort. Um, I still do that automatically and it's like really deeply ingrained in me. Um, so to have to remind myself, um, and even when I do remind myself, sometimes I'm still like, I can't, I can't not do this (laughs) compulsion. Um, but at least I I do think it, I do think that it is important to be aware and at least be able to acknowledge acknowledge what's happening, I do think that that makes a difference. In the heterosexual mainstream, women have performed the labor of holding and expressing emotions for others. If emotion must be killed, this is work that can make women targets. Less decent men hunt out vulnerability, because if being a man means learning to hate vulnerability, then you hate it in yourself and in the gender that has been carrying it for you. Rebecca Solnit, the mother of all questions. Yeah, um, you posted in one of your posts about how sometimes people say to you that they don't even notice your disability as though that would be, (laughs) like, a nice thing to say. Yeah, do you want to talk, like expand on, on that a little bit? About people saying, I don't even notice, I didn't even notice that the chair was there. Or if there's all kinds of, there's people online that, that say things when they're just looking at a picture. All I see is a beautiful woman. Um, or <laughs> which, um, or I think in, in real life, I think, um, I think that people worry that um, 
somehow even acknowledging that the disability is there at all is somehow an insult. Um, but of course, like you have to believe in order to, to, to fear that as an insult, you have to believe that it is an insult, that this is a terrible thing, or this is something that's better ignored or that you would be better if it didn't exist. Um, so, um, yeah, I, I don't, nobody ever makes that link. I mean, people don't ever assume that what they're saying is, um, they feel like it's a compliment, right? Like I see who you are, um, and your chair, it doesn't factor in, but for me, and I, I don't think this is, this is surely not true for everyone who uses a mobility aid, but for me, um, my, my paral paralyzed legs and my wheelchair are a huge part of who I am. And if you don't see that, um, you don't see me, um, because I, um, I, I don't, and I think part of this is because I've been paralyzed for so long. I wonder if, if somebody's injured later in life, if it doesn't feel this way for everyone. But for me, um, this is a part of me from the beginning. Um, this is shaped, um, who I am from, from every direction. Um, and I don't see it as, as something, um, to make us uncomfortable or sad or, um, it doesn't feel like a tragedy to me. Um, the, the existence of my body <laughs> as it is. I think there are plenty of, um, ways that, um, people with disabilities experience other forms of tragedy out in the world with the way that, um, the world receives them or how the world is built for them or not built for them. But, um, when it comes to just my body and this chair that I use everywhere that I go, I'm not, um, hoping that you, that you can't see it. <laughs> um, cause I know that you can, um, <laughs> it's right there. And also that's okay. That's okay. Yeah, I mean, because you also write about, you know, if you're going to a restaurant, or I think you wrote about also, like, when you were trying to buy a house, like, how suddenly you're confronted with how people yeah. don't think of disability when constructing public spaces or even personal spaces. Um, mm -hmm. So it's it's almost like they don't see your, your, your wheelchair so much because, like, they're not even thinking of it. It almost goes... <laughs> right, exactly. It's like... Um, they, it feels like it's a compliment, but really what you're saying is like, um, we don't, we don't recognize that we, we need to make accommodations. We don't realize that the world isn't built for you. We don't realize that you don't have access to a place to live because there's no chair, right? We're good. <laughs> yeah. That's a really good point. Um, that's a really good point that, um, that not seeing it is actually part of the problem. That's, um, part of why we are here why the experiences we have um are shaped like they are um it's it's okay to look at it in fact please do let's think about this a little bit together <laughs> there is something actively aggressive about this tendency some well-meaning people have to pretend not to notice difference in others it's a trap that lures you in with the promise of acceptance but in order to be included you have to try your best to hide your difference to blend in, to be like everyone else. Until yourself, your true, complicated, unique, and wonderful self starts to disappear. Yeah, and I think that's what's so compelling about your Instagram feed is because you post all these like great photos of you and you're always wearing these like amazing floral dresses that I'm <laughs> that Hannah and I are both like super jealous of. <laughs> 
God, I'm going to take that with me and put it in my pocket. <laughs> and, yeah, and I just think, like, you're kind of presenting... I mean, it it feels to me like you're you're presenting a lot of different ideas in that and, like, like commenting on, like, femininity and how we present ourselves, but also you're not trying to, like, like, disguise your chair or... I know there's just, like, something, like, kind of confrontational about it, but also really soft and emotional about it, which I really, I really love. Man, that is so exciting to me that you see that um, in there, because I would want that to be there, but it's, I don't know, it's, like, hard to wield all of the pieces sometimes, but, um, yeah, I think that that is a big goal that I would have um, for, for the pictures. I think... Um, you know, thinking back, um, man, I, I keep going back to the letter though. And, and like this, um, this like desire to just not care about perfection. And I think that, um, the Instagram account has been one of those things that has allowed me, um, to actually undo some of the work that, um, that was, for, that was kind of, that had already been instilled in me to care about perfection or to care about to not, not even perfection, but just like what a body, what a woman's body can look like and still be acceptable. Um, so I think like the act of taking those pictures and including my chair in them, um, is part of that work to, um, kind of build a different narrative in my head. So, um, like I had noticed, uh, I had started to notice that so many pictures that, um, were taken of me or that I had taken of myself cropped out my chair. Um, so I had this whole visual record of my life that was like erasing that and cutting that out of the frame, um, as if that wasn't a part of, of me. Um, and I also hadn't seen very many pictures of women in chairs that were like fun and, um, and, playful or bright or okay, you know, with that chair being there. Um, so many pictures of, of disability are like there to make people feel sympathy or something. Right. And, um, to, so for me to participate in taking pictures that included all of me and, and, um, were there to kind of create a beautiful record of this body's experiences um and then to be able to find other people who were doing that um and see other people uh like uh, pictures of other other people who um, are just living life and taking beautiful pictures of themselves in their with their chairs and and their different bodies um that's really powerful that's a really powerful force um so you had pictures of disability there allowed to be complicated and aren't just used for non-disabled people to feel something whatever it may be um, that's rare and so I'm glad I'm glad that you see all of that in there that means a lot but I think that's like one of the great things about like online spaces like uh, social media is it allows for other other stories that maybe like aren't profitable in a capitalist society that aren't easy to mass market, like others, other images to be visible and other people to tell their stories. Um, and to not always tell these like cleaned up inspiring 
stories. And I think like getting back to the question when the person asks, like, like, do you, do you ever wish you were someone else? Or do you ever feel this? Do you ever feel like uncomfortable in your body? Um, yeah, to give ourselves spaces where we can just be there and maybe like as women, as feminists also have space where we can just like not feel great about ourselves and talk about that too. And not always have to be like, girl power, women are amazing and everything, you know, we're strong, but also give ourselves, create these spaces where we can show like vulnerability and yeah I think it's 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 great to to have that and to find other people doing that um Mm -hmm. yeah the like the messiness of it there's something so um so much relief um to to realize that people um are in the middle of of messes (laughs) um (laughs) perpetual messes um it is it is and then and then like there's something about knowing that that allows you to ease into wherever you're at. And I think that then like actually being okay with yourself is just maybe comes a little bit, a a little bit easier. Yeah. I'm a huge fan of messiness and all of that. I think it's a really nice place to be sometimes Mm -hmm. just like being comfortable with messiness Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, one of the pictures of yours or one of the images of yours that's in my bathroom is the girls that have the braids like together and it says you get it mm-hmm. and I think um, I think like even more than wanting to be the star feminist that feels amazing about herself every morning she wakes up I think there's something really beautiful in um, like like realizing that other people understand and that they they feel the thing that you feel too, whatever that like less than ideal, chaotic, whatever you're in. Um, and then, and, and then seeing that somebody else has that and shares that and, and you are not alone in that, like that connection itself is a really stunning thing, um, that can't be created when everybody is like, got it good, (laughs) you know? Um, I do love that, that those moments with people. Yeah, it's really funny that drawing, once I was at like a market selling my stuff and a guy came up to my table and was looking at my prints and he saw that one and he was like, I don't get it. Oh. <laughs> like, well, then it's it's not for you. <laughs> yeah, good, good, good job recognizing that this isn't for you. <laughs> like, it's not for you oh. then. <laughs> right, because if you do get it, you see that and you know, and you know that moment mm-hmm. with you know that that feeling that like oh deep breath um I can I can feel the ground underneath me again like this is gonna be okay you understand the madness in my heart and um yeah I get it (laughs) (laughs) yeah you get it we get it (laughs) it's terrifying to take off our armor and expose our vulnerable selves to a world that is filled with aggression and volatility But the truest gift of vulnerability is that it opens the door to relationships. The real kind. The ones where you can be yourself, take a breath, feel comfort, and say to someone, you get it. I've seen people calling out or calling in people about, like, 
ableist language and how it's so like ingrained in how we speak and how especially if you're writing in any sort of like romantic way there's like so many words like like being uh-huh. blinded by something or like uh-huh. crippling emotions or like how do you I wonder like how you feel about that or if that's something that you feel that affects you or yeah I think it's a really good question and it's not one that I feel really solid on like um I don't have like my answer for for ableist <laughs> language because I as someone who um it's like so reliant on words to understand anything. Um, so like writing through the world and experiences and my feelings is like the only thing I know of how to make sense of things. And, and I, 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 I've said two words in this whole interview already that are like ableist. <laughs> and I'm like, every time I hear it myself and I'm like, Oh, why did I say that? Um, so it is, it's like so deeply ingrained. Um, in the way that we communicate with each other and we have such, we use a shorthand to mean, to mean things. Um, and I think in general, I think it's, it's useful to try to move away from that. Um, but I think when we are like, um, like jumping on each other, uh, and kind of, um, that call out, like, um, I don't know, I think it can be, it can be, um, Uh, like shut us down quite a bit and feel really unsafe to even attempt to work through an idea. Um, And I also think like, I think ableist language is indicative of the way that we have um, structured our hierarchies and, um, and, and like what we value or don't value as a culture. But I, I, I do think I'm like saying this really hesitantly because I, I might like totally disagree with myself tomorrow, but I think in this moment, as we're talking about it, I think that, um, there are other ways that we can more directly, um, challenge those values. And then maybe my hope is that our language will adjust according to that shift. Um, I think that like, um, that like overemphasizing language might be counterproductive in the larger goals that we have. Um, so something to be mindful of and, and to be aware of, um, but also in conjunction to um, the actual values that they represent. Um, Cause again, because we have learned these words from the time we were so young and pulling them out of our, of our vocabulary, um, is, is difficult work. And I think there's a range of them too, right? So like saying something like, um, um, I'm, I'm paralyzed by fear is, is actually kind of an accurate description maybe of, um, I don't know, being stuck. Um, but then some, some words, um, are a lot harsher and only used in, in, um, to describe things with cruelty, I think. And so that's also a different category. There's like stuff to parse out in there. Um, so I don't know. That's kind of my clunky working that through. It's a hard one mm-hmm. and not something I want to be dismissive of either. Um, I think it does. I think our words matter and I think, um, it's worth looking at together and not acting like that doesn't matter, but also knowing that someone can say a word, um, 
easily and and not intend the the connection um but it is like embedded in our language so i don't know both of those things at the same time um (laughs) yeah no i mean i think that's like a great answer i think it is i think it's a complicating question that doesn't deserve like a simple one answer do you ever sometimes feel like exhausted of, like, and I'm saying this as I'm asking all these questions like explain to us about everything that you're feeling does it feel sometimes exhausting like the educating that you have to do um yeah. that's a good question and by the way this is not exhausting this is the best this okay, conversation good. is really fun um I I will say I think I feel the most exhausted um when um like I I I like put pour a lot into the things that I write and share with the world. And these days, mostly that's social media. Um, cause I only, I starting this job, I like had no time to write anything. It's my greatest sadness. Um, but, but I put, a, I like overthink every single thing that I write and share and think about it from every angle. And I, um, I'm like, I like work through something a lot before I share it with people and then to do that work and then, um, to have responses that, that really emphasize that people either aren't reading or don't understand. I think those are moments when I feel the most exhausted because at that point it's like, but I don't know what else to do. Like I can't, I can't just rewrite this post for you and. Um, and so like some of the conversations, some of those conversations that just feel like they come up a lot and, um, and people are always consistently resistant to like a few of the core ideas that I, I feel strongly about. Um, and that can get exhausting. Um, and, and sad. I mean, like even, (laughs) even like with my own parents, there are things about, um, about, disability that they just can't understand. Um, and like, I think that's exhausting and also kind of isolating. Um, like, uh, I think one of the big ones, and this is not something that I feel like I need to, um, like go to battle for and, and like the, the, my one thing, but like one of the things that I write about less now, maybe I should write about it again, um, is what it's like to, uh, be a person with a disability and constantly be bombarded with offers for help. Um, because so there's like, anytime I go out in public, especially like grocery store things around, like having to do something, um, I'm just used to people like rushing to help me, um, which, um, is motivated by a lot of things, but on the surface, I think what most people are trying to do is help, um, and be kind and, and, and not like, um, ignore someone who who needs assistance. Um, but it's a really, that is like a really tiring, frustrating, uh, reality, of being in public, um, because it's like a con for me, it's a constant reminder that, um, I'm, re- I'm perceived as being helpless or in need of help when I feel really competent. Um, I don't always feel competent, but when I'm at the grocery store, I'm fine. <laughs> this is not that big of a deal for me. And, um, and I, and anytime I've tried to write about that or, or share that, um, it's always really met with a lot of resistance and, and, um, sometimes like defensiveness and, um, 
So I think when you have those conversations again and again, especially when I've put in all of the thought into a writing and then to have it be dismissed really easily. Yes. I think that gets tiring. Um, not tiring enough at yet, um, for me to not want to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is something that, uh, it's not rewarding at the very least. It's not a rewarding feeling experience. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting how people just don't understand that by always trying to like help you they're they're making assumptions about about what you're able to do like you're an adult woman you've made it this far (laughs) you clearly haven't like starved to death you can go to the grocery store (laughs) right right I um like I often and the thing is people are not thinking about it that much but I often want and like do you think that I just sit out of out in front of doors until somebody comes by and opens them like um I don't know I can do it but yeah yeah it is it is full of a lot of assumption and it and it feels like it's assumption about the the constant role that you think I should be in and that you should be in so um the wheelchair person is constantly the one who needs help and the person walking is the one who's here to do to offer the help um, and it, and I do long for an understanding that, that, that goes in multiple directions and, um, and it's, yeah, it just gets old. Yeah. It gets a little old. But it's not old to the extent where I'm like about to burn something down. Just, it's just <laughs> where's it just, it's draining and it makes you just a little bit less willing to go out in public some days. Um, when you feel like I just don't have. I don't have this the spirit in me to to navigate that with any amount of grace or Yeah, like I just yeah. don't wanna like go out there so that someone can feel inspired for being like a good right. person for opening right. the door yeah. for you. So I, so I can give somebody some points for their good deeds. <laughs> We've all done it. You're walking around town and you see someone who you think needs help, and you go out of your way to help them. Then you go on about your day feeling like a really good person. But how often do we actually ask people if they need our help? How much of the help we give is to feed our own selfish egos and motivated by our assumptions of how helpless it must feel to be other? In the media and every movie, like, if there's, like, especially a young woman in a wheelchair, like, she's just waiting for her Prince Charming who's going to love her anyway and, like, save her. Yes. Well, and even, I mean, like, if you want to take that out even further, like, even a woman who's not in a wheelchair is waiting for the help, right? Like, can you, you're stronger than me. You can probably lift this bag of of rice off of the shelf better than me. (laughs) I don't know. So, yeah, I think you're right. I think um, when we think about disability representation and, like, how much experience or how closely someone would understand that experience, what stories do we have? And, and again and again, it's, um, it's a story about helplessness and, um, often, um, like self-loathing and depression. And, um, not to say that that's not part of the experience of disability. It's just, it's the experience of humans and, um, and there's more experiences out there than just that, that handful um, for, for people with disabilities too. So, um, that is, that is, um, something I am very hopeful for, for the future. We got to get more stories out there that, um, 
tell something different. You can follow Rebecca on Instagram at sitting underscore pretty or visit her website, RebeccaTossig.com. Rebelliously Tiny was written, produced, and edited by me, Ambivalently Yours, and co-produced and co-written by Hannah McCasland. The music is by Greg Barkley. This episode was recorded in the field and at Obero Artist Run Center in Montreal, with technical support from Stéphane Claude. A special thanks to the entire team at Obero for their kindness and support. To learn more about my work and this podcast, please visit ambivalentlyyours.com or follow us on social media at RebelliouslyTiny on Instagram and Facebook at RebelliousTiny on Twitter. If you would like to be a guest on the show or submit an anonymous question of your own, please send us an email at RebelliouslyTiny at gmail.com or email us an audio recording of your question. You can also DM us on any of our social media accounts. If you would like to support our podcast, please share it with your friends and subscribe and rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to make a financial contribution, please email us at rebelliouslytiny at gmail.com. This season is entirely listener-supported, and we are eternally grateful to everyone who shared and contributed to our Kickstarter campaign in the fall of 2017. Thank you.